Romans 7, verse 1. Know ye not, brethren, for I speak to them that know the law, how that the law hath dominion over a man as long as he liveth. For the woman which hath an husband is bound by the law to her husband so long as he liveth. But if the husband be dead, she is loosed from the law of her husband. So then, if, while her husband liveth, she be married to another man, she shall be called an adulteress. But if her husband be dead, she is free from that law, so that she is no adulteress, though she be married to another man. Wherefore, my brethren, ye also are become dead to the law by the body of Christ, that ye should be married to another, even to him who is raised from the dead, that we should bring forth fruit unto God. Please open to Genesis chapter 2, page 3 of your Bibles. Genesis 2, we'll read verses 18 through 25. For our consideration this afternoon, verse 18 of Genesis 2. And the Lord God said, It is not good that the man should be alone. I will make him and help meet for him. And, of, and out of the ground the Lord God formed every beast of the field, and every fowl of the air, and brought them unto Adam, to see what he would call them. And whatsoever Adam called every living creature, that was the name thereof. And Adam gave names to all cattle, and to the fowl of the air, and to every beast of the field. But for Adam there was not found an helpmeet for him. And the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon Adam, and he slept. And he took one of his ribs and closed up the flesh instead thereof. And the rib, which the Lord God had taken from man, made he a woman, and brought her unto the man. And Adam said, This is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, because she was taken out of man. Therefore shall a man leave his father and his mother, and shall cleave unto his wife, and they shall, they shall be one flesh. And they were both naked, the man and his wife, and were not ashamed. Thus far the reading of God's holy word. Let us join together in prayer. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for your holy word, for the law of marriage. Give us wisdom as we consider together the words of God, that we may grow in grace and knowledge, and be ready to apply your word to our lives. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. Last week we began our study of Romans chapter 7, and having looked at verses 1 through 4, we will now consider this law of marriage mentioned in verse 1, and in this series on marriage we'll go through verses 2, 3, and 4 in order, looking at the various other passages of Scripture that refer us to this law of marriage. This week, God willing, we'll consider the creation law of marriage. The next week, God willing, we'll look at the patriarchal period of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob and those intervening. And we'll also look after that at the law of Moses, then the prophets, then the apostles. So we'll take those in order concerning the laws of marriage, divorce, remarriage, etc. Today then, Genesis 2, 18 through 25, God's work of creation. Looking there then at verse 18, 
the Lord says, the Lord God said, it is not good that the man should be alone. I will make him and help meet for him. Notice there, not good. This is the same word for good used throughout the narrative in Genesis. As God created the world, he would declare each thing he said and made as good. He spoke things into existence and then said, that is good. And on the sixth day, he said that everything that he had made was very good. Genesis 1:31. This is in contrast. God now looks and identifies something that is not good. What is it? He tells us that the man should be alone. Now this word alone means to be separated. Remember when Jacob was playing tricks on Laban? He would separate certain rams from the ewes. That's the same word, separated. When he was left alone to wrestle with the angel, which was also God, that's the same word. He was alone. He was separate. Nobody else was there with him. So here, did Adam have companions? Well, no, he didn't. In a sense, he had lots of animals surrounding him, but he had none who was like unto him. The the Septuagint uses the word manon here, where we get our word monasticism from. He was alone. He was a monk. And God says, that's not good. I, God says, will make him God's going to do something to resolve this situation of monasticism in Adam's life. God's going to form, to do, or to make the woman. And then he's going to make an institution called marriage. But first he makes him an helpmeet. This word help is very interesting. It is adjutatorium, or an adjutor in Latin, in the Vulgate. Boethon, where we get our word Boethius from, or our name Boethius in the Septuagint, and Ezer in the Hebrew, where we get our name Ezra from, or Eben Ezer, a stone of help. Ezer is God helping his people, blessing his people, doing good to his people. God says he's going to make for this soul one, this monk here, Adam, He's going to cause him to have someone to assist him, to bless him, to help him, because God has given him some tasks. Exercise dominion, be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth. Can a monk do those things? Of course not, especially the part about multiplying. He can't do that at all. And so God says, I will bring him an helper who is meat. And this word meat literally refers to facing someone. It's like a correspondence or a parallel, a mirror image of himself. And you see this as the, t- as the text goes on, don't you? Adam had all these animals come before him. And among every single one of them, did he discover his image or his parallel or his helpmeet? Well, of course not. They're whole different species, whole different kind. They're not his same sort. And so he did not find them. No parallels to himself. Then verses 19 and 20. And out of the ground the Lord God formed every beast of the field. Now it's referring back to what had already been described in chapter 1, the forming of all the beasts of the field. And every fowl of the air and brought them unto Adam to see what he would call them. 
and whatsoever Adam called every living creature, that was the name thereof. What is Adam doing? He's pursuing his calling. He's pursuing his dominion that God gave to him, specifically in the naming of the animals, which is an authoritative act. To name some person or something is a mark of authority. When God names his people, it's his authority. When parents name their children, it's their authority the parents have over the child. So Adam has authority over every living creature. He is the Lord and master and therefore he names them. He's pursuing the calling God gave him. Notice verse 20. And Adam gave names to all cattle and to the fowl of the air and to every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found an help meet for him. So Adam, in the pursuance of his calling, realizes there's nothing here for me. There's no image of Adam in this place. There's no parallel reflector who can help me with this. In the exercise then of dominion and the calling that God had put him in, his lack was shown to him. God was setting the stage for his goodness to Adam to bring him and helper meet for him since he did not have one among the animals. I note then this doctrine. The single state is not good for man nor for the fulfilling of God's purposes. Okay, God says Adam's monkery was not good. Being alone, manon, all by himself, separated from others, that's not good. That's the first thing. And God had given Adam tasks that he could not fulfill on his own. I note it is not the ordinary state of man nor is companionship to be sought in other creatures, other pursuits, or other endeavors. This is like the kid who lives in his mama's basement and plays video games well into his 30s. He thinks that provides companionship. He's got his buddies on the network that he plays games with. Is that what God said is good? No, it's destructive. It's contrary to what God says, which is because you are alone in this not good state, I'm going to provide a companion for you. And while you pursue your calling, Adam, I will make it clear to you that there is nothing there for you of the sort that I'm going to give you. This is the law of marriage. This offers then a rebuke to monasticism. The theory that you're more holy the more alone you are. That if you avoid the married state, You've arrived at Christian perfection or some greater degree of holiness and sanctification if you're a virgin than if you're one of these common people who gets married. This is anti-Christian. This is ungodly and the doctrine of demons. This implies some superiority to singleness over the married state. And this continues even in Protestants. That somehow, if you're single, you can serve God better, but it's kind of a necessary evil to get married. What does God say? It's not good to be single. Therefore, I will institute a good thing called marriage. And we say, no, it's not good. Who are we to talk back to God? We must think we're pretty important. This also is a rebuke to misogyny. That is, misos is hating and gunai is a woman. So the theory of men who hate women because all women are horrible. I can't live with them. I can't live without them. 
This is the theory of a misogynist. All women bad, all women good, or all men good. The opposite of that is feminism. Women good, men bad. These are the devil's tricks to bring people into bondage to their lust and their human philosophy. To put down and belittle the institution of God and say, well, it's not really that good. No, God said it was not good to be alone. God's wrong. That's what they're saying. It'd be better to be without that other kind, male or female, as the case may be, whether you're a misogynist or a feminist. They both say the same thing. This is also a rebuke to sodomy and all unnatural lust after creatures. Did God bring Adam a male? No. Did he bring him an animal? No. And therefore, those are unnatural, contrary to God's created order. Forcing clerics, those who have a holy calling, to somehow stay celibate, that is against, just as much as sodomy is against the law of nature, so are these vows of singleness imposed on priests in the Roman church. It is a doctrine of demons, a casting off of God's order, calling God a liar, saying to be single is better than to be married. God says the opposite. This is a rebuke then to all these errors. This also serves as an exhortation. If we are married, keep the law of God, the law of marriage, the natural state before your minds. This is God's purpose This is God's intention. Does sin corrupt it? Does sin breed confusion and conflict? Well, of course it does. But that does not mean that God's grace abolishes the natural order. No, God's grace restores the order of nature. God's grace perfects the order of nature. The gospel does not get rid of marriage. The gospel perfects marriage. So let us keep this natural state before our mind. Do you desire to be married at some future point? Keep God's design in mind. When you look for a woman, look for a woman, boys, who thinks in terms of these categories. I will live according to God's orders. He will be the head. I will be the spouse. He will be my ruler. I will submit to him. I will help him in his calling. I will bring forth children to him. In fact, we'll get into this later. The word for woman in Greek means she who produces. It comes from the same word for Genesis, where God produced all things. She who brings forth life, in other words, as the name Eve, Hava, implies as well. But here you see, if you're going to get married, you must have a biblical mindset and those whom you intend to marry, or she, men whom you intend to marry, must have this same biblical mindset. And ladies, girls, the same is true for you. Do you want a man who thinks of you as, well, we'll be on the same plane, we'll have a democracy here, and I'll make sure that I don't ever step on your toes. What sort of ruler is that? What sort of head is that that consults its body and says, well, I will not make any decisions until my body is perfectly pleased? Not a very good head. Not a very good ruler. A king who consults all of his members is a fool. Should he have counsel at times? Yes, of course. But you find a man who wants to act like he's in subservience to you, that he will kiss the ground that you walk on. You have a man who is a fool. You have a man who is not a man. You have a boy who's grown up who still wants a mommy when he gets married rather than a wife. 
So we must keep God's natural state before our minds. A man should be pursuing a calling as Adam was when he realized, I need a wife. And he must see this as a solution, not merely for his sexual drive, but for the calling God has imposed upon his life. A single state, again, is not good for man. Therefore, another exhortation, prepare yourselves if you are unmarried and desire to be so and do not have the gift of singleness, prepare yourselves for the marital state. This is what is good. This is what is normal. This is what God has ordained in his word. Boys, you cannot do it all by yourself. You cannot be a self-made man. You need help. That's what God said. Man in his unfallen condition needed help. What about us sinners? Yes, we need help. Pride is a barrier for men going into marriage. They think they've got it all covered. They don't. Seek a woman suited to help you in your calling. Girls, as you grow up, Prepare yourselves by being submissive to your parents, obeying their orders, listening to their counsels, and also see your design to be a helper to a man. This is contrary to things that we'll see later, like the career woman. He didn't say, Eve, you have your garden over here. Adam, you have your garden over here. And the angels will provide daycare for your kids. No. Adam has a calling. The woman helps him in his calling. Now, verses 21 and 22. The Lord says, And the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon Adam, and he slept. And he took one of his ribs and closed up the flesh instead thereof. And the rib which the Lord God had taken from man made he a woman and brought her unto the man. Okay, so here we have the design or the forming of Eve, the rib which the Lord God had taken from man, he made a woman. Now, this is very interesting. Our word woman comes from two words, womb and man. She is from the womb of man. Then God gives two results. Verse 23, And Adam said, This is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. She shall be called ishach because she was taken from ish. Ish is the word for man. Ishach means she who is out of man, who derives her source from man, as the word woman in English, the womb of man. In the Vulgate, in Jerome's Vulgate, he translates this word ishach as virago. Vir is a man. Ago is to lead or to bring. Virago is where you lead someone out of the man. So even the Latin tongue recognizes this source of the woman from the man. Now, as I mentioned earlier, the word gune, which means a woman or a wife, This means she who came into being or she who brings into being. From ginomai, the Greek verb. She's the one who brings things into being. She is the mother of all living. Hava, as we'll see in chapter 3. I note then this doctrine. 
nature and scripture concur together in naming the woman as from the man. The natural order, scripture, and even pagans who knew nothing about the Bible, they understood she is the mother of all living. She is from the womb of the man. She derives her source from the man, and therefore she is under his authority. And we'll see this in Ephesians 5.23, that because she's from the man as her source, she's under him as her head. He is to rule over her. Therefore, not only can we, but we must define a woman as what God has designed her to be. She is that female counterpart of the man, the help who is answerable, suitable, or reflects the man, the parallel of the man. That is what she is. She was formed from the source of man, from his rib. She is made in man's image as well as God's. She is designed to help man in his calling of being fruitful, multiplying, filling the earth, subduing it, and exercising dominion. This is what a woman is. And when people say, I can't define a woman, it's because they worship the devil. It's because they hate God and they will not submit to the order God has imposed on nature, nor to the truth that he's revealed in the scripture. They are fighting against the inevitable. It is what we call a reductio ad absurdum. That's where you, if you're, if you're in a debate and you want to prove that the other person's point is so ridiculous you engage in what's called a reductio ad absurdum. You reduce their argument down to the point of absurdity, and therefore their argument must be wrong if it leads to these absurdities. And you can prove that logically that leads to this, then that position is absurd. That's what Paul does in Galatians 2. If you say, Peter, that we're justified by works, listen to the absurdity that follows. Christ died to no purpose, right? If righteousness comes by the law, Christ died to no purpose, and we're still in our sins, and we're all going to hell. There's, there's no point. Okay? It's absurd. So if people say, I can't define what a woman is, guess what? They've done the reductio absurdum for you. You don't even have to do it. All you have to say is, oh, you don't know what a woman is, huh? You're a moron. You're absurd. Your argument is invalid. You've proved it from your own mouth. Not only can we define a woman, we must define a woman according to God's holy word. This then is a rebuke to the demon of transgenderism, the worship of Baphomet, who is half male and female, this demonic wickedness, but also to more subtle forms of feminism, or the crazy cat woman. Think about all these ladies, they got a thousand cats sitting around. Why? they don't have a husband. They don't have a man that they're serving. They haven't defined their reality in terms of what actually exists. That's why we call them crazy cat women. The brazenness of the career woman. I'm not going to help him with his calling. I'm going to be my own person. Well, God didn't make you that way, but I'm going to do it anyways. It's brazen. It's contrary to the light of nature and the teaching of scripture. The unnatural dream of egalitarianism. Remember I was telling you ladies, that guy who doesn't know that he's a man, who doesn't think he'll be the head of the relationship, 
He doesn't have to crush you to know that he's going to be the head. He can still be a head without crushing the woman. But the egalitarian has this unnatural dream that everything's going to be equal. It's 50-50. No. She was taken from the man, and therefore she's under his authority. This exhortation, then, for women. Embrace God's design for your life, for your body, for your mind. Define yourself by his truth. And all the feministic trash, put it where trash goes, in the trash can. Throw it away. Get rid of it. They promise freedom, but what do they deliver? Bondage. Do you know that before women started murdering their infants in the womb, do you know what they got before that? Well, they got access to the workforce. Do you know what they got before that? Access to voting. Do you know what they got before that? The right to tell men they can't drink alcohol. You see the progression? We will be the lords over society. We will be free from the bondage of the patriarchy. And what did they get? They're slaves to their demonic lust and they murder their infants. Is that freedom? Is that what Western woman wants? To be the bondage of the devil? To murder what you ought to cherish the most? That's not freedom. That is bondage. That is death and hell and destruction. But the promise was, you'll be free. You won't be under those horrible old men. We'll smash the patriarchy. Embrace, then, ladies, God's design for your life. Define yourself by his truth. And take all that feministic trash and put it where it belongs in the garbage. Men... Recognize that God has not designed your wife to be like a man. This is a frustration for many men. This is why Peter says, as we'll see, dwell with them according to knowledge, giving them honor as unto the weaker vessel. Do you expect your wife or will you expect your wife to be just like you? Because if you do, you are sorely mistaken. You will find out she is not just like you. She may play and pretend to get your attention to be like the boys, but she's not like the boys. Doesn't feel like them, doesn't think like them, doesn't act like them, doesn't prioritize like them. Her body's not built like them. Her emotions aren't built like them. Her mind's not built like them. Don't think she's going to be a female you. She will be like you in some ways and unlike you in others. Do not expect as Adam, when he received this woman, was he supposed to expect that she's going to do everything I do? She'll be as strong as me. She'll have the same calling. No. It's ridiculous. It's absurd. And do not expect it of your wives. She is the image of the man. She is the glory, the reflected glory of the man. She is not the man. And do not expect it of her. We are to honor them and dwell in understanding, even honoring the weakness that God built into them. That's what Peter says. Give honor unto them, how? As unto the weaker vessel. That is to be honored and respected because God made her that way for your good. Then do not expect her to be manlike in endurance, in physical strains, in labors and toils. Do not expect your wife to be like you are, to have the same abilities or even the same weaknesses as you have. Notice, 
Not only do we have the definition of woman by the origin of the woman and God's defining her, but also verse 24, the second application is, therefore shall a man leave his father and his mother. Now, is this God speaking or is this Adam speaking? It could be either. If it's Adam speaking, he's speaking as a prophet because at this point, are there fathers and mothers? There aren't. So he could be foreseeing as God's prophet and God revealed this to him that there would be generations that would come and this is the means by which marriages will take place. That's possible. It's also possible that after Adam has finished speaking about these things that God now sums up, this is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh, she shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. That could be the end of the quotation for Adam or it could go on. But in either case, God, through Adam or by himself, through Moses, he speaks these words. Because this is the case, because of the specific nature of the woman and her origin from the man and her being flesh of his flesh, because this is the case, this must follow. One, a man shall leave his father and his mother. Two, and shall cleave unto his wife. Three, and they shall be one flesh. These, things, these three things follow from the specific nature of the woman. God's design, you might say. Now, first is, shall leave. That's the first thing. Because of this, or as the New Testament puts it, for this cause, when quoting this passage. Because of the woman's origin in the man, the man shall leave his father. Because God did this thing to create this woman, therefore you have this duty. You must leave behind your old ways. You must cleave, he says, unto his wife. The man is to cleave after he leaves. Now this means to cling to something, to remain close to it, to have loyalty to it or affection toward it. And it often continues to carry the idea of physical proximity, being close physically, dwelling together, in other words. This is the idea of cleaving. There is a transition of loyalty. There is a change of location. There is a duty of cohabitation, that's living in the same house, sharing the same bed. And there is a transfer of closeness and affection. The old family is left behind. The new family is formed a new home, you might say. And then the Lord says, they shall be one flesh. Now this word in Hebrew is basar. It refers to what you see, the flesh of an animal or of a man. It's used in both senses. Sarka is the Septuagint or carne in the Vulgate. It means flesh. It doesn't mean the person, the whole person. It does not mean the soul. It only refers to that portion of humanity formed from the dust of the ground. And then God breathed his spirit into man and made him a living soul. But before that, all you had was basar. You had flesh. You had a body. It is then a physical union of one man and one woman. That's what marriage is. From two who have left their old families behind and formed a new bond, a new loyalty, a new closeness and proximity, a new family. That's what marriage is. This is what God defines marriage to be. This rebukes then those who would make marriage 
a spiritual union that lasts into all eternity. Now, the Mormons do this. Of course, they say you're married forever, spirit babies in planet Zorgob or whatever, and you live on forever. Yoo-hoo! That's their, their dream, their pagan fantasy that they have. Now, there are also heretics in the early church called the Phrygians, and one of their own number is even respected as a teacher in the church. His name was Tertullian. He joined with the Montanists and the Phrygians, and they taught that marriage from Romans 7, that marriage is for all of life and you can never get remarried. Period, full stop, no questions, no exceptions, that's it. No second marriage, period. It's a, a different tune a little bit, but it's the same basic theme. That marriage is eternal, it goes on and it's spiritual, it's not the flesh that become one, it's the spirit or the person that becomes one and therefore if that other person dies, and you're married to them spiritually, well, I guess you're stuck. That's it. You stay with them. But the Bible does not teach that. The Bible teaches that it is a physical union. Also, those who wish to make marriage a sacrament, because they say marriage is this spiritual union. They want to make it into a sacrament. No, it's not. Polygamists are also rebuked. Those who say you may have more than one wife, at the same time. This is rebuked. The two, says he, shall become one flesh. Not the three, not the five, not the 17, not the 1,286. The two, he says, the twain shall be one flesh. This also condemns unnatural lust. This condemns the mama's boy or the wives who run to mommy and daddy when times get tough in marriage, they can't hack it, they go back to their former home. What did God say? Leave. Leave it behind. Cleave. New loyalties, new priorities, new proximities. God defines marriage to be this very thing, and those who can't hack it go back to mommy and daddy. And they want some help. They want somebody to baby them. They don't want to grow up. They don't want to live in the real world. Well, I'll tell you, this is God's real world, and we have to live in it. You don't have a choice. You can be insane. You can go crazy. You can live like a baby, but you're not going to glorify God that way. You must grow up, and you must have the right expectations. Men, do not keep your old loyalties to your families. Love your parents, respect your parents, but keep a distance. Ensure that your old loyalties are abandoned for the sake of new loyalties. That's what it means. Cleave unto your wife. And the same goes for wives. Leave other loyalties behind. God has designed you for this man to help him in his household doing God's work together. Now, verse 25. And they were both naked, the man and his wife, and were not ashamed... Now, shame is a very important thing. Shame is when a person feels in their emotions and their body that they have done wrong and their conscience is condemning them. The Westminster Annotations note, they are commonly most vicious who are least apt to blush or to be ashamed of what is done amiss. So why is God saying they weren't ashamed? Well, it's telling us this. There's nothing wrong with their condition. 
There was nothing wrong with the state of their bodies. There was no malformation, no being run by lust and wickedness. No, this was the appropriate place. This was the right condition. This was the right state of marriage. I note this doctrine then that marriage is honorable among all and the marriage bed is undefiled. We'll look at this later, God willing, in Hebrews 13.4. This is a rebuke again to the notion of monasticism who would make married people feel shame that they are not virgins, that they are not alone by themselves. Oh, that's horrible, you ungodly, worldly people with kids. And you have, you know, the marriage bed. Oh, that's yucky. That is the doctrine of devils. And do you see why? What does the devil want people to do? He wants them to take the created order and not see the gospel as perfecting it, but what? Gobbling away at the natural order, causing the natural order to be turned upside down. That's what the devil teaches. And so when he says, you may not marry, what's he doing? He's upsetting the order of nature. Forbidding to marry is the doctrine of devils and of monks, I might add. Prudish persons who are overwise or believe that the flesh is evil and therefore the single life is to be preferred are also rebuked. They were alone as man and wife. They were both naked and there was no shame in that state and condition. Oh, but if you were just a virgin and avoided ever getting married and were strong like me, then you wouldn't need marriage, you weaklings. This is the doctrine of the prude, of the monk, and of the devil. All right, now, another exhortation, and we'll conclude this study. Married men and married women... I exhort you to rejoice in the gifts of God in your marriage. Do not feel ashamed for the pleasures of marriage. They're not dark and dirty. They are actually good things that God has given, and they're to be enjoyed for the glory of God in full confidence that God has sanctioned them and approves of them in his great goodness. So thus far, we've looked at marriage in creation, the law of marriage that the apostle is referring us to in Romans 7, verse 1. God willing, next week, as I mentioned, we'll continue in this study of marriage, looking at marriage in the time of the patriarchs. After that, we'll look at marriage in the law of Moses, then in the prophets, then in the New Testament. Let's pray.